Philippians 2, 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'm sure that many of you, um, not all of you I know, but many of you watched the coverage of the Queen's funeral a couple of weeks ago, and many different aspects of that might have struck you. But one of the images that really struck me at the time, and again, I was reminded of this past week while thinking about the scripture, is this one. I don't know if you remember, this is the point in uh, St. George's Chapel when the imperial crown was removed from the Queen's coffin at the end of the funeral service. It was a moving and a significant moment in many ways, even if you are a Republican, it was a point in history. But for me, at at the time, My main emotion was worry, actually. I was worried about this guy. He was the one who was removing the crown. We call him Mark, because that is actually his name. Uh, So Mark seems to me to be a pretty ordinary kind of guy. And what he has to do is to stretch up, to reach up, to take this most iconic, this precious piece of jewellery from its place on the coffin and pass it on to someone else. Watched by the king the Archbishop of Canterbury, whose expression is interesting, but anyway, uh, and four and a half billion people around the world. What would it feel like to hold five billion pounds worth of jewellery in your hands in front of the whole world? It's a stressful moment. It's not as if Mark is unfamiliar with the crown. He's been the crown jeweller for the past five years, but handling and looking after and enjoying this magnificent piece of jewellery in private is one thing. Taking responsibility for it in public is another thing altogether. And I feel a bit like I think Mark did at that time today. This passage that we're about to look at is a wonderful, beautiful, profound expression of the heart of the gospel. It offers a rare but immeasurably valuable insight into the mind of the Trinity. It is something far more valuable than five billion pounds worth of jewellery. It's a passage I'm very familiar with, as Andrew said, and as I expect many of you are too. But as we come to look at it this morning, we need to handle it with a special care, with reverence, to appreciate its beauty, but also to understand its significance. Because just as the crown is not just a beautiful headpiece, but also a symbol of majesty and rule, So this passage is not just a beautiful set of words, 
that speaks to us of the wonder of the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the contrast that we have in this passage is immense, isn't it? It's a story that takes us from the most splendid majesty to the depths of the cross. It takes us then from the awful mess of death and the pain of the cross to the supreme place of exaltation and glory. It's an immense story. And as we go through it, maybe we'll see that the word jewel gives us a good way of remembering what this passage is all about. We'll see that it's all about the mindset of Jesus. It is the one who is, was, and always will be eternally God. But he's also the one who is wonderfully and amazingly and perfectly human. One who died, was executed on a cross, but who now and always, as we've been singing, will be Lord of all. And the overall story that this passage gives us is tremendous. But there are also some detailed aspects of it that are definitely worth looking at more closely as well. So just as the overall beauty of the imperial crown is is staggering, if you look more closely at the individual jewels that it's made up of, that makes it even more amazing. And so we're going to look both at the overall beauty of the passage this morning, but also look at some of the individual gems uh, that make it up. Before we do that, Jocelyn has read it beautifully already. I'm going to read it again because the words themselves are the most important thing that you will hear today. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven And on earth and under the earth, in every tongue, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can see that the passage is a two-part harmony. Part one takes us on a downward journey. It starts with Christ's pre-existence. It tells us about uh, his incarnation and so on. It starts with unselfish deity emptying, servanthood, humanity, humbling, obedience to the point of death and crucifixion. And then part 2, verses 9 to 11, sets out the consequent upward journey. It tells us about Christ's ascension, exaltation, lordship, vindication, glory, and the way he glorifies God the Father. And as we approach this passage today, it's been described as the beating heart of the epistle. It's a brilliant epistle, as we've been hearing about already over the last few weeks But this is really the heart of it. And this may be a hymn, or it may not be. Commentators are pretty divided uh, on this point. But as one of them says, this remarkable passage is at once one of the most exalted, one of the most beloved, and one of the most discussed and debated passages in the Pauline corpus, that is, in the letters that Paul wrote uh, in the Bible. And huge numbers of books and um, sermons have been spoken and written about this. And while we should try to understand the issues that it confronts us with, it is not a passage that we should look at intellectually only. 
It has been described as the holy of holies of Scripture. And Alec Mateo, a well-known commentator, writes about it like this. We tread on very holy ground indeed. We do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but to reform our lives. This passage is meant to have an impact on us. And as we look at this passage today, therefore we need to approach it carefully and reverently. We need to appreciate its beauty but we also need to recognize that it is not meant to be just a nice text on the wall. It is meant to fundamentally change our lives. And that's where today's passage starts. In verse 5, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this word mindset means an attitude or a frame of mind. It's a direct follow-on from the exhortation in verse 2 that we were looking at last week to be like-minded. And the mindset that it goes on to demonstrate is directly opposed to the selfish ambition and vain conceit that we were talking about last week. It's a mindset that leads to unity. It is a mindset or an attitude that calls for a sacrificial pouring out of our lives. It calls for servanthood. It calls for humility. It calls for action as well as motivation. It calls for consistency as well as one-off actions. It calls for visible and tangible reality, an expression of deep-rooted Christ-likeness, not just a superficial brand of human niceness. But more than that, even, this passage gives us an insight into the mindset or character or intention of God himself. It shows us that God is love and God is glory. It shows us that God's thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. So much higher. But they are not only higher than our thoughts, but they also go lower than our thoughts. They show that the mind of God, the mindset of God, is a sacrificial mindset. Let me say that again. The mindset of God is a sacrificial mindset. And that is incredible. It is fundamentally different from any other form of religion or belief you will find anywhere in the world, most of which see their gods only in terms of power and rule. And while our God is indeed all-powerful, all-knowing and sovereign, his attitude and mindset is one of love, of relationship, of sharing and of self-sacrifice. And that is the mindset we are to have as well. So with that as the backdrop, let's look at the other verses in turn. Sorry, I'm going too far. And verse 6 tells us some really important things about Jesus. And the first thing it tells us is that it helps us to understand that Jesus always was, is, and always will be God. Translators have struggled with this word, which in the NIV is translated as in very nature. Other versions say things like existing in the form of God. And the Greek word is morphe, which means form. The important thing about it is that it is the outward expression of the inward reality. Let me say that again. It is the outward expression of the inward reality. It doesn't just mean shape or external appearance. For example, Satan is described as disguising himself or appearing as an angel of light, but that clearly was not what he was in reality. He was the very opposite of that. But here, this word, form or nature, means that Jesus was 
actually himself God and expressed himself as such. He was inherently, really, truly and expressively God. And that is a critical and fundamental truth. That Jesus is God is essential for our salvation as well as the basis for our worship. Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, an expression of his deity, you will die in your sins in John 8. He was and is true God from true God, very light from very light, as we sang earlier. And this is something that is a stumbling block to many people, including to uh, many from an Islamic background. Along with many other people, they may be prepared to accept that Jesus was a good man or a wise teacher or even a great prophet, but to acknowledge him as God is a step too far for too many people. And yet, it is fundamental to our Christian faith. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, John writes at the beginning of his Gospel. And at the end of his Gospel, he writes this, These things are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But the second important truth that this verse tells us is that Jesus' eternal deity was not something that he seized or grasped or clung onto or used to his own advantage. As one of the Trinity, he did not need to. He was and is himself God, co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit enjoying mutual love and relationship and counsel and purpose. That is amazing. But more than that, Jesus not only didn't need to use his eternal deity to his own advantage, but that was also not his mindset. And we can learn from that. For us to be imitators of God, which is what we're exhorted to be in Ephesians, we cannot and shouldn't look to human power or lordliness, or characteristics, or selfishness, to understand God-likeness. He is fundamentally different. Instead, we should see, as one commentator puts it, that Jesus' equality with God found its truest expression when he emptied himself. The God that we know, and that we worship, is not a distant God, who sits outside the world, who lures it over us, plays with us like pieces on a a chessboard, whimsically introduces pain or reward or punishment or uh, good things into our lives. That is not the God that we know and worship. No, our God is one whose deity, whose power is expressed through pouring himself out in love. And we know that because Jesus has shown us. Jesus has shown us what that looks like. Jesus made himself nothing. Let me just say that again. Jesus made himself nothing. That is the mindset of Christ. And if that was not in the Bible, you would have difficulty accepting it. I would find difficulty saying that if it was not scripturally based. Jesus, eternally God, made himself nothing. And the Greek word here is kenosis, It's another word that translators have had some difficulty with. Commentators have written about a lot about it. It literally means he emptied himself. The King James Version, I think, says he made himself 
of no reputation. But let's be clear, the emptying himself does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity. That is not true. In coming into human likeness, he did not cease to be God. And that is really important. He emptied himself in the sense that he poured himself out or held nothing back. He emptied himself or became nothing by taking the form of a servant. He became nothing, not by subtracting from what he was, but by adding taking on something additional, the human condition. He remained fully God, but also concurrently at the same time became fully human. This is really important and really difficult for us to get our heads around, but it is a fundamental truth. And as the Son of God, he fully and completely expressed God and made known the Father. Hebrews 1 tells us, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In John 14, John says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To look at Jesus in his human form is to see God. And that is incredible. But in coming into this world, Jesus laid aside the outward appearance of deity and instead he took on the form or very nature of of a slave. And slave is probably a better word than the translation in the NIV here that says servant. The point about a slave is that they are owned by someone else. It reflects the fact that we as humans are owned by God, our creator, the one who made us. However painful a concept that may be to so many people who would prize their own independent humanity. And again, we have this Greek word morphe or form here, that outward expression of the inward reality. It implies that Jesus came in reality into a subservient position, a position of service. It wasn't just that he appeared to be human. This is really important, one of the heresies of uh, of, of the early church. It wasn't just that Jesus appeared to be human. He really was. And we can see that when we look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. He came in human likeness to his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2 tells us that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. That was the mindset of Christ. But he was without sin. And that is a crucial difference between Jesus and all other humans. He had no sinful nature and was without sin in anything he ever did or said or even thought. I find that really almost impossible to understand. A person who could do no sin even in his thoughts. And yet it is the greatness of the humanity of Jesus. So as we think about these verses, let us not get hung up on technicalities, but worship at the incredible marvel of the incarnation. There's an old hymn that I'm familiar with, may not be familiar to many of you, but it says this, God manifest in flesh, O wonder of his universe, O wisdom all divine, that takes such blessed lowly ways to bring to pass its holy purposes in councils deep, that God may find a full response in worship and in praise. As we read John 1, the word became flesh and dwelling among us, we should indeed be lost in wonder, love, and praise. 
And the thing I'd like to say here is that this is not just a whim uh, or a downward drift on God's part. It was an act of divine wisdom. The incarnation was not an accident. It was not an act of weakness or failure. It was part of God's eternal plan of salvation. It was premeditated. It was a deliberate act of sovereign will. It was the product of divine counsel within the impenetrable relationships of the Trinity. It was conceived in uncreated eternity, but carried out in created time. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, The Son of God came into the world when the set time had come. The incarnation happened at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right place, in God's sovereign ordering. At just the right time, Jesus exchanged the unimaginable splendor and majesty of heaven for the constraints and filth of a sin-stricken world. His majesty was known in eternity, of course, but even in creation. Consider him placing the stars in their place. Each of those immense celestial bodies put into specific positions, specific orbits. Jesus did that. But then... He left that aside. He came into this world that he himself had made, divesting himself of the outward manifestation of greatness, becoming nothing, entering the world as the tiniest of tiny cells in the womb of a peasant woman in Palestine, born in a stable, laid in a manger. That was the mindset of Christ. But it didn't stop there, did it? The loneliness and going down mind of Christ did not stop there. Being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The downward journey didn't stop with the incarnation. In his human body, he humbled himself in service. He had no possessions of his own, nowhere to lay his head, He befriended the friendless, reached out to the outcasts of society, the tax gatherers, the lepers, the prostitutes, the sinners. He healed every kind of bodily, emotional, and spiritual disease. He, God incarnate, knelt down and washed the dirty and tired feet of his friends. Do you not just wonder and love him for that? Such was the mindset of Christ. Such is the mindset that we are called to, to, in our measure. But even that was not all. Jesus' obedience to God meant that he went on to death, even when he had no requirement to do so. Death was the consequence of sin, of course, and Jesus was without sin. He was the purest and loveliest and most perfect of all humanity. But nevertheless, he took on our faults. The suffering servant of the Lord took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, the prophet says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him and by his stripes we are healed. And you know what? He did that when there was no incentive from us to do it. He did it while we were still 
sinners. And the death that he died was not just any old death, but the worst form of death, reserved for slaves and criminals. It was death on a cross, in which in some mysterious and incredible transaction, he took on and suffered for our sins in his own real and human body, bearing the full force of the judgment of God against sin in love for us. Such was the mindset of Christ. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God did it. God exalted him in resurrection and in receiving him into glory at the ascension. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Romans 6 tells us. And Peter preached to the Jews in the beginning of Acts, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Jesus passed through all the heavens. He took up his place in the highest point of glory. He is now seated at the right hand of God, and God has given him a special name. We know that Jesus is the sweetest name on earth for for forgiven sinners, but it is also the demonstration of authority and kingship. It is who he is, not just something that we call him. And mostly in this world, Jesus is at best ignored, if not actively disdained, despised and rejected. But one day, as we sung earlier, one day everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. And for those who do not do it now, out of love and appreciation, they will be forced to bow the knee to him in a coming day, however reluctant they may be. In that day, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of creation will exalt. What a day that will be. Even the mountains and the hills will burst into song. Think of that. The trees of the field will clap their hands, Isaiah tells us. In the Revelation, John saw every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And what was the response? The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. But even in the final day, we see the unselfish attitude of Christ. He receives the glory rightly, but he doesn't keep it to himself. It is for the glory of God the Father. In the end, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Christ, as Son of God, will give up the kingdom to God himself, and God will be all in all. Such is the mindset of Christ. And so as we contemplate these incredible words that we've looked at, the question is really, so what? What difference does that make to you, to me? What impact do they have on my life? As I view the unselfish, humble, self-abasing servanthood of the Lord Jesus, the King who offers his glory to God, how do I become more like Jesus? How do I develop the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And more than that, 
How is that demonstrated in church? Because as we started with, this is not just individual. It is also collective, expressed in our relationships with one another. If all of us really lived with this kind of mindset, what a church we would be. But we cannot do it ourselves. It requires the help and power of the Holy Spirit, who wonderfully has exactly the same mindset, the mindset of love and sacrificial service, because that's the mindset of God, and the Holy Spirit is God too. And so it is in love and sacrifice that we model Christ. It's a love for others that comes in response to the love that God has shown us as flawed sinners. A love for others that is stimulated by looking at and being occupied with Jesus, even in the messiness, the failings, the imperfections of our own and others' lives and decisions. It's a sacrificial approach that doesn't ignore the inadequacies of others or of our own failings, but sees beyond them, sees beyond them to the Saviour, who, despite his immeasurable greatness and majesty, emptied himself for us. As I've been thinking about this this week, there's a chorus that I've come back to time and again, and it says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I commend it to you. I commend him to you. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, as we've been looking at your wonderful steps of grace and love, we are overwhelmed by what you have done, by your greatness, by your glory, by your majesty, by your splendor, by the way you were prepared to lay it all aside and become nothing for us. And how rightly crowned is Jesus. And we give thanks, Lord Jesus, that you are crowned, that you are rightly crowned at the right hand of God. And we pray Holy Spirit, that you will come and operate in us, work in us, create that same mindset in us that was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us individually, help us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.